0: The loves of King Charles II. Now, this is going to be uh, some of it will be new, and some of it are three various podcasts that I've done before, because I have done a, a podcast on Barbara Palmer, Lady Castlemaine, and uh, Nell Gwyn, as well as uh, Louise de Caraval. So, I'm going to start off with the explanation of what, how he was what he what he was like when he was young, and lead us to him becoming king. Now Charles I and his queen were not particularly good parents, especially to their first two children, Charles and James. Till the last few months of his life, Charles lacked the informality needed to be a good father. When his children were young, he had their portrait, done by Van Dyck, hung over the breakfast table where where they could be seen but not heard. Charles II's governor had more influence over his childhood development than his father. The Earl of Newcastle was a cultivated grandee who did not overburden the boy with too much learning, instead taught him that it was vital for a monarch to be the most courteous and civil to everyone, and that to women you cannot be too civil, especially to great ones. Well, the Civil War further separated the king from his heir. Prince Charles and Prince James spent the first two years of the conflict with their father in the royalist headquarters of Oxford. The king let them watch the Battle of Edge Hill with William Harvey, the great physician became too engrossed in a book to notice the cannonballs that fell close to his precious charges. In 1644 his fortunes hung in balance and Charles I sent his 11-year-old heir to the West Country to serve as titular head of the royal forces. Two years later the defeat at Nesby, having sealed the royalist fate, Prince Charles sailed from Cornwall first to the Skilly Islands and then the Jersey. Four months afterwards, having rejected his counsellor's advice, that leaving the last royalist stronghold would greatly diminish the morale of the last-ditch cavaliers still fighting in England, the prince sailed for France. In 1648, sick and tired of his mother's interference, she pocketed his pension from the Cardinal Mazarin, saying that no English heir should stoop so low as to accept French dole, Charles left her and went to Holland. The young prince had not been away from his father's supervision for long before he made the acquaintances of what he later referred to as the little fantastical gentleman called Cupid. Charles was only fifteen when Christabella Wyndham, the wife of the royalist governor of Bridgewater, seduced him. Since Christabella had been one of his wet nurses as a baby, this initiation might well interest modern Freudians. Certainly it outraged the prince's chief adviser, Edward Hyde, who was shocked when Mrs. Wyndham, a woman of great rudeness and country pride, maternally kissed the prince in public. Charles's next love, Marguerite Carteret, was but four years his senior, the daughter of the Seigneur of Trinity Manor. She first met the prince in Jersey in early 1646. Afterwards, she claimed that her son James was produced by the encounter, which seems unlikely, for Charles usually acknowledged his bastards. Anyway, the pregnant Marguerite hurried to marry Jean de Clot, an obscure fellow well enough below her station to be happy to agree to be the father of someone else's child. Charles proudly recognized the offspring of his next liaison, with Lucy Walters. Evelyn described her as a brown, beautiful, bold, but insipid creature, while Hyde thought Lucy was a Welsh woman of no good fame but handsome. She first met Charles in The Hague in 1648 and became pregnant by him in July. Subsequently, she claimed to have married Charles, thus attempting to legitimize their son James a few months before his birth the following April an assertion that Charles denied and which Lucy's later behavior belied. After staying with Charles, mainly in Paris, for a couple of years, she left him for a legion of lovers, any one who could have been fathered her next two children. When her eldest child, James, was seven, Lucy returned to England. The Cromwellian regime arrested her, taking full advantage of this propaganda coup to discredit the pretender's morals deported her to the continent where after charles seized custody of their son she died of venereal disease in 1658 during his exile charles's relation with his other mistresses was amiable as those with lucy were acrimonious in 1651 he had a daughter charlotte fitzroy from elizabeth killigrew who was the sister of the duke of york's chaplain and the wife of francis boyle viscount shannon seven years later he and catherine pegg The daughter of a Derbyshire squire had a daughter, who died in infancy, and a son, Charles Fitzroy, who survived. At the same time, Charles conducted a discreet liaison with the twice-widowed Lady Elizabeth Byron. Such promiscuity scandalized the Puritans. One Cromwellian spy lumped fornication, drunkenness, and adultery together with going to the theater on the Sabbath as the great abominations that are esteemed no sin amongst the prince and his cronies but for charles the activities relieve both the tension of the war and the despair of defeat if mistresses and one of them claimed that she was his 17th did not keep the exile heir going during the dark days of the commonwealth, they did at least help him retain the sense of humor and those cheerful good manners that did so much to endear him to his fellow countrymen when the monarchy was restored in 1660. When he returned to claim his patrimony, the new king did not, of course, leave his promiscuous ways behind on the continent. Instead, he brought with him his current mistress. Barbara Villers, one of the main mistresses of King Charles II. She's also known as Barbara Palmer through her marriage... And, of course, Lady Castlemaine is what she's usually referred to. She was born on May the 12th, 1641, or if you're going to go with the change in the calendar, uh, would be May the 22nd, 1641, born in Westminster. Her father was William Villers, the second Viscount of Grandison, and her mother was Mary Baining. Now, Barbara was a cousin of George Villers. If you remember, he was the second Duke of Buckingham and was one of the male friends of of previous king. Now her father died in 1643 from battle wounds. So the family is going to be kind of on its own. Now of course Barbara is tall, voluptuous, auburn hair, and has these blue-violet eyes which were just absolutely captivating. As a royalist lacking a fortune, her marriage possibilities were significantly limited. The shame that people have to look for money while you're looking for someone to marry. But at the age of 16, Barbara had a serious romance with a gentleman named Philip Stanhope, who was the second Earl of Chesterfield. But despite constant visits to his Lincoln Inn Fields lodging, no hint of marriage. Well, Stanhope's just using Barbara while he's looking for a more financially worthy bride. He ends up marrying an Elizabeth Butler in 1660. Well, you know, Barbara moves on. She goes to Roger Palmer, who she married at the age of 18 against his family's wishes. Uh, the two would officially be married until his death 47 years later. But she's really not going to be very faithful to him, and that's 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 on the and that's being kind. Uh, it, it's uh, his father, Roger's father, actually said that by marrying Barbara that she would make him the most miserable man in the world. And he certainly was the most cockholded man in the world. You know, when your wife cheats on you and you really don't do anything. Now, they would separate after three years of marriage. In 1662, after the birth of Barbara's first son... Now one of the reasons they didn't divorce is her husband was Catholic and he wouldn't be able to go to communion and other things at that particular time. And although she has a multitude of children, none of them were fathered by her husband. Now Barbara met Charles II in a very unusual role. She met him as a messenger. A cousin, Sir Alan Broderick, needed to send an important message to Charles who was in Brussels. Barbara delivered the message and caught the eye of Charles, who was well known for scoping out the ladies. When Charles II was restored as king, his first night on the throne was uh, kept by summonsing Barbara to his bed, and a few days later she became pregnant. At least that's how the story goes. Charles made Roger Palmer an, in- uh, not an English, an Irish Earl in 1661. He was the Baron of Limerick, which I, I find fascinating because with, the, with all the stories about what a Limerick is, and he was also the Earl of Castlemaine. Now, this is done basically to protect all of Charles's bastards by Barbara as sus- a succession to the titles of the Baron of Limerick and the Earl of Castlemaine could only go to children born by Barbara, who was now Lady Castlemaine. So if he had any children, they wouldn't be able to, they be able to inherit his, those titles unless they came from Barbara. Now, Barbara had six children by the king, but he only officially recognized five. In 1661, she had Lady Anne Palmer Fitzroy, uh, possibly Charles, but looked very much like Earl Chesterfield, In 1662, she had Charles Palmer Fitzroy, who inherited many of the titles. 1663, she had Henry Fitzroy, Earl of of Eustace, Duke of Grafton. In 1664, Charlotte Fitzroy, Countess Lichfield, who later in her life, when she was married, had 20 children. In 1665, she had George Fitzroy, the Earl of Northumberland, and, of course, the Duke of Northumberland. So, as you can see, Charles kept her... Pretty busy for five years then the sixth one there's a break she doesn't have that one until 1672 and that's Barbara Fitzroy also known as Benedicta possibly the child of John Churchill the Duke of Marlborough so Barbara gets around Barbara was was very well known to the people of England they actually sold portraits of her and whatever so it's kind of an odd situation. Now, when Charles married Catherine of Burgunska in 1662, Barbara was not happy. Now, she ordered all of her underclothing to be washed and hung out the dry on the palace grounds in full view of everybody. And Evidently, she had a significant amount of underwear. Uh, Samuel Pepys remarked on her vast array of underwear as it was, was out on the line. Uh, Charles made Barbara Lady of the Bedchamber after he was married, which is the second most important because she is the lady-in-waiting to the Queen, which is really odd. You're going to take your mistress, and she's going to be the main lady-in-waiting to your wife. Needless to say, Catherine was enraged, and it took a few months to finally work it out, but she finally accepted Barbara, who was openly known. (laughs) It's not exactly the best name, but she was known as the royal whore. In 1663, for some reason, Barbara converted to Catholicism. One line of thought is possibly to strengthen her ties to the king, but Charles had his eyes on other women, and to guarantee her future, she had a close friend named Baptist May, who was made keeper of the privy purse. Of course, May then sent funds Barbara's way, and she also took bribes from Spanish and French ambassadors, as well as having other affairs which she tried to keep hidden from Charles now my favorite one of her other affairs is with a guy named John Ellis John Ellis was one of Lady Castlemaine's shall we say dalliances but he couldn't keep his mouth shut he began going around boasting of having ridden the royal whore well Barbara was just you know besides herself. I mean, Charles will find out what am I going to do. So what she did was she very quickly retaliated against Mr. Ellis. She hired a group of thugs to beat him up, and in the process they also castrated him. Which is a pretty good indication to anybody who messed with her that you know, keep your mouth shut. She had some other friends. Uh, She had an an affair with an acrobat Jacob Hall. She had an affair with her second cousin, John Churchill which is the future Duke of Marlborough however in 1673 parliament passed the test act now this is the mistake that she made by becoming catholic the test act banned all catholics from holding office in england which meant that lady castlemaine lost her job as lady of the bedchamber and then of course charles moved her out anyway because you know he went on to somebody else which is louise de caraval Uh, and so barbara you know is Produced all these children Nice lady Good looking Great collector of underwear But out she goes now barbara however when she got older was still interested in having a little action unfortunately she's going to end up having to pay many of her lovers who included actors a rope dancer at the age of 40 she took up with a 34 year old actor highwayman slash robber named Cardinal goodman his friends just called him scum <laughs> that's a nickname <laughs> wonderful they were together for together for six years and she gave him one son in 1705, Roger Palmer died. Barbara was now free to marry. So at the age of 64, she married a 54-year-old adventurer, Major General Robert Bow Fielding. But her new husband beat her up basically for money and at one point tried to kill her when, when he found out that she had told her family how he was treating her. Uh, he came into the into the room where she was at in the house, aiming a like one of these great big blunderbusses at her. Not exactly the most accurate weapon in the world. And she ran to the window, threw it open, and yelled screaming out into the street, "Murder! Murder!" And her her husband would then just take potshots at people. Eventually. Barbara's son finally had the marriage annulled over on what grounds I wouldn't have any idea and had uh, had Beau tossed in the Newgate prison which should have taken care of him well Barbara Villers slash Barbara Palmers Our Lady Castlemaine who is also known as the Duchess of Cleveland died October the 9th 1709 at the age of 68 of dropsy which severely bloated her once beautiful body and that's the end of her mistress louise de caraval now she's going to be another of charles ii's little lady friends here now she was born on september or in september of 1649 her full name is louise renee de penicotte de caraval later the first duchess of portsmouth her father was Guillaume de penicotte lord of Carawal and her mother was Marie de Ploc de Timur. The family had, were, were, were very no, had very long noble ties there in Brittany. Uh, as a matter of fact Louise ended up being the maid of honor for King Charles Second's sister. Henrietta Anne Stuart, who was the Duchess of Orleans, married to the uh, brother of Louis XIV. So she was the sister-in-law to the Sun King, Louis XIV. Now, one story is that her family placed her, hoping she would catch the eye of the king. But not Charles. They were thinking about Louis XIV because, of course, Louis XIV had quite the eye for the ladies as well although he was more of a one-night stander to some extent with a few special ladies but you know they were almost right because she ends up with King Charles II. Now Louise met Charles II when Princess Henrietta came to London for a visit and Louise had what uh, John Evelyn called was a beautiful baby face. Charles II fell head over heels for her the first time he saw her. He's really kind of a get a good look, size them up, and decide whether they're really worthwhile. But she played hard to get. Louise is very clever and had a strong will to go with her various feminine charms. When Princess Henrietta went back to France, so did Louise. Well, in 1670, Princess Henrietta died. Louise at the time was 21 and now without a sponsor. Her family wasn't that high of nobility, so she's really in a little bit of trouble. And this is where our white knight, King Charles II, decided that he would appoint Louise a lady-in-waiting to his own wife, Catherine Braganza. which is, of course, uh, after poor, the, his poor wife, she ends up with la- ladies-in-waiting that are almost always his mistresses. Now there's a claim that Louis XIV convinced her to go to Charles so that she could help push England closer to France. And although the French ambassador certainly gave her aid and she certainly received gifts from the king of France and she really did move Charles II to various treaties with France, there's no real evidence, hard evidence, to indicate that this is a master plan by the French government. Of course Charles persevered and um, and pursued after after Louise arduously but she kept teasing him and taking her time before allowing Charles II to attain his full pleasure with her it took almost a year which is really kind of taking a chance as, as uh, fickle as he is with women sometimes there's a great story of how closely she was watched by the French ambassador There was a dinner one night and Louise became sick to her stomach. And of course she had been in England a year and what the ambassador was thinking is that she was pregnant. Unfortunately, it was just bad food. (laughs) She wasn't pregnant at that time. Eventually, the French foreign minister, Colbert de Croisset personally took Louise to Newmarket in England so that she could be with Charles II. He liked watching the horse races, but he was all alone at Newmarket as his current mistress, Nell Gwynne, was seven months pregnant. Well, this at this meeting, Louise then allowed Charles II to successfully enjoy her fully, and a few months later, shall we say nine months later, she gave birth to a boy named Charles. How surprising. Louise was, was made on August the 19th, 1673. She was made the Baroness of Petersfield, the Countess of of Fairham and the Duchess of Portsmouth, and these pro, these titles and the land that came with them actually produced a significant amount of income for her. in In 1677, she was making twenty-seven thousand three hundred pounds off of those estates. In addition, prior to that, in 1673, Louis the Fourteenth gave her the title of Duchess of Albigny and made her part of the peerage of France. However, as, as fishy as this looks from the standpoint of aha, the French are really in cahoots putting her with the king. In reality, those titles were given to her at the request of Charles II to Louis XIV. Now, of course, Louise is popular in bed with the king, but she's not popular in England. Uh, um, Nell Gwynne, his other mistress, referred to her by the nickname Squintabella. And, of course, she's Roman Catholic and French, which are two real negatives within the country. But Louise is different from some of the other mistresses, like uh, Lady Palmer and uh, and some of the others. She wasn't promiscuous whore uh, having sex with other people. Rather, she was totally Charles II and his alone. Uh, she, Louise was even designated Charles II's official mistress, which is which is kind of nice if you you're going to do that. Of course, Charles chased others, and as a result, ended up giving Louise venereal disease something that she would then remind him of over and over and over again. Uh, and, of course, Charles II, who is normally generous regularly, was even more generous in the guilt of having done this to her. But Louise forgave him, never asked him to give up his, what they call, wenching, chasing other women. So she provided Charles with a quiet sanctuary, and all she asked for was just fine clothes and jewelry course she's making good money off the titles just give me some fine clothes and and jewelry Uh, the two were together for seven years her son charles was made duke of richmond in 1675 louise was his companion to the end she saw to it that charles who was sympathetic to catholicism did not die without confession and absolution Charles, before dying, asked his brother and heir, James, the Duke of York, to be kind to his mistresses, especially the Duchess of Portsmouth. After Charles II's death, Louise returned to her French pensions and grants, which eventually were lost during James II's reign in the re- and, of course, then the Restoration in 1688. So Louise lived at uh, Aubignon. Uh, Philip II, regent um, at Louis XIV's death, then protected her from her her debtors and the French government gave her a pension and she died November the 14th 1734 in Paris at the age of 85. Nell Gwynn, mistress that he had she's really kind of a uh, rags to riches mistress because she comes from the very lowest uh, levels of society and works her way up through the social arena to become the mistress uh, of the king. Uh, She is the daughter of Madame Gwynne, who, uh, by historical accounts, was supposed to be this enormously fat brothel keeper who smoked a lot and drank too much, which is probably not unusual for uh, people running these uh, operations. I think you'd find that pretty pretty good description of whether you were out in the American West uh, looking at brothels or what have you. But other than that, there's very little that's known about her. Uh, Nell became, actually, uh, Nell's real name is Eleanor, uh, Nell... Got into prostitution as a, as being helped by her older sister Rose, who uh, provided her with early connection. Uh, at the age of thirteen, Nell was a serving girl at a local ale house, which of course you could provide liquor, or for a little extra money you could have sex on the side, and in, in several rooms where, where people could of course supplement their incomes. Depending on where you are, some of these alehouses will have a, a complete mix of people. You'll have regular working-class people, Uh, but you'll also have uh, members of the nobility that will come in. And And the story goes that the one place that she worked frequently had some of the king's companions. Again, her sister kind of gets her moving up the uh, the level, if you will, because she became the mistress, or her Nell's sister became the mistress of a shareholder in a theater, and she was able to get Nell a job as an orange girl, so she would sell fruit and sweets to the theater patrons. Now, of course, these these are pretty expensive, but you know what's very common is there's a term called a nosegay, and that is you know the air of these places. I mean, it stunk in a lot of these places and it was not uncommon for nobility to take for example an orange stick a put a stick through it so you could hold it in your hand and then put cloves in it and then you would kind of keep that around your nostrils and that would kill the smell of walking through the city or for that matter you know going into a theater some people may not exactly smell the best either but anyway Nell ends up uh, in with an acting career because women had just been uh, recently afforded the opportunity uh, to participate in that you know during Elizabethan times it had been uh, forbidden for women to appear on stage and an actress was considered a little higher status than the prostitutes of the time so that's pretty good the next mention of of her uh, supposedly she made her first appearance in a theater play in 1665 in a play called the indian emperor by john dryden and later on he wrote several roles for her specific uh, acting talents did very well she particularly was supposedly good in comedies but it didn't provide enough money for the lifestyle that that she was looking for so instead of just being your regular prostitute she began sleeping with the right men and this of course increased her money and her wardrobe and her stage roles got a little bit a little bit bigger this of course got her the attention of other wealthy men so she's kind of moving up the ranks here now it's you know if you're going to continue rising as a mistress you're only going to be as successful as as high as you can go okay so you have to keep climbing this ladder her first real chance uh, to move up came when uh, her manager and friend traded her traded her mind you for the promise of patronage to Lord Brockhurst. In other words, Lord Brockhurst would provide money for this man to keep his theaters open. In return, he gets Nell. It's Lord Brockhurst who's going to teach her the social graces and And the things that go with the status, because you just don't want to walk around as a noble with some uneducated horror on your arm. You have to have a, a sophisticated, she's getting some education along this way. And then while she's having an affair with Brockhurst, she's approached by the Duke of Buckingham. Now, I find this really funny because several texts mention this, but they refer to the Duke of Buckingham as pretty much nothing more than a royal pimp. And what he would do is he would periodically select women for uh, King Charles II to check out. Nell happened to be one of those that was brought before Charles II. Unfortunately for her, she got passed over. First time through, she got passed over for another actress whose name was Maul Davis. But it had nothing to do with, you know, she wasn't turned down because she wasn't good looking. It's just that, again, there are accounts that say before she'd become the king's mistress, she wanted cash up front. She wasn't just waiting for royal favors. She wanted a little money right away. You know, that's being a little forward, perhaps, you know, in the mistress game when there are others who await. You know, she ends up eventually getting invited back. And once she becomes the king's whore, as she used to refer to, to herself, uh, she was really just an occasional partner periodically over a period of two years. Uh, but she was supposed to have had two children by Charles, Charles Beauclerk and uh, James Beauclerk. One was born in 1670, the other was born in 1671. But a lot of mistresses that Charles II had were Catholic. Nell is one of the few Protestant mistresses at court, therefore the other Members of the court who were mostly Protestant fawned on her, and there are there are songs written about her. There are plays. The dramatist uh, Bain, B e h n wrote the play *The Feigned Courtesan* about her in 1679, and the, there's the famous story of 1681, where supposedly she was going in a carriage to the the palace to to see the king when a mob of people stop the carriage because they thought it was carrying the uh, the French Catholic mistress and they start shaking it now there are two versions of of what Nell supposedly says there's one where she sticks her head out the window and says excuse me good people but I'm the English whore at which point the people applauded stop shaking the wagon and let her in then there's another version that says pray good people be civil I am the Protestant whore. And she then goes on uh, in and uh, and what have you. But she doesn't, you know, she's not going to live too long. She dies in 1687. She only lived to be 37 years old. She was born in 1650 and died in 1687. She was survived by one of her sons who uh, was made the Duke of St. Albans. But she's also considered by a lot of English historians to be one of the favorite of the English mistresses because she didn't come in from from a foreign country. And and in addition to that, um, she, shall we say, worked her way up from the bottom to the top. As far as sources, one book is entitled Horrors in History by Roberts. There's another one, The Royal Mistresses by Carlton, and that is for the most part about English mistresses. And then there's the Encyclopedia of uh, Mistresses by Asuva, and that one covers everything, all sorts of ancient, medieval, all the way up in the modern times. Hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget to come by sumahistorica.com and pick up a CD, or thank you very much.